1: Welcome
2: to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm Stephen Winnick, and I'm here with my colleague, John Finn.
3: Hello, everyone.
2: We're folklorists at the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress. John is the head of research and programs, uh, and I'm a folklife specialist, as well as the creator of the blog Folklife Today, which you can find at blogs.loc.gov folklife.
3: And today on the Folklife Today podcast, we're going to talk about another hidden folklorist, As we've explained before, hidden folklorists include people whose contributions to folklore are generally overshadowed by their work in other areas. So the spy and detective, Alan Pinkerton, or the broadcasting icon, Alistair Cooke.
2: Right. But in the idea for hidden folklorists, I was also inspired by the book and film, Hidden Figures, and by some public events that we held at the library, which focused on that story as well. So there are also hidden folklorists whose folklore work wasn't recognized enough because of racism or sexism or other forms of discrimination.
3: In this episode, we're going to look at the great poet, novelist, and playwright Langston Hughes, who you could say fit into both of those groups himself.
2: That's right. And we've got a couple of guests we're going to talk to about Langston Hughes. The first is our colleague from out West, Langston Colin Wilkins. Langston is a native and a scholar of Houston, Texas, who currently works for the Center for Washington Cultural Traditions in what we like to call the other Washington, Washington State. So welcome to the podcast, Langston.
4: Oh, thank you. Happy to be here.
3: Uh, Before we ask you about Langston Hughes, tell us a little about yourself and your own research.
4: Yeah, let's see. As you said, I'm a native of Houston, Texas, born and raised there, native Texan. Uh, I'm currently living out here in Washington State uh, as the I guess, quote unquote, state folklorist, director of the Center for Washington Cultural Traditions, which is a a program co-sponsored by the State Humanities Council and the Washington State Arts Commission. Um, But also, um, I research uh, in the areas of African American folklore, um, urban folklore, street culture, hip hop culture, and car culture, and all that good stuff. Um, You know, my doctoral dissertation um, was on the Houston hip hop scene, looking at impact of space and place on music making there. Um, I'm currently um, revising that into a book format. So cross your fingers, um, that should be coming out at some point. Um, So yeah, I think that's who I am. Sounds,
2: Sounds great. And we should mention Langston that your lecture in our Benjamin Botkin series on that topic is online as a webcast and people can find it by searching for Langston Wilkins on the Library of Congress website. So by now, it's become kind of the elephant in the virtual room. We're doing a podcast to talk about Langston Hughes, and our first guest is actually named Langston. And that's not a coincidence, is it?
4: No, not at all. (laughs) Yeah. um, So I was absolutely named after Langston Hughes. Um, I can't take credit for that. It was my parents doing. Uh, My dad was a a playwright. Um, He got his degree in theater. And, um, and he brought across genres and Langston Hughes was one of his favorite writers. Um, so that's where I got my name from. I grew up with a whole volume of Hughes's works in the household. I still remember this old tattered uh, collection of his poems that used to hang out on the shelf. So, uh, yeah, yeah, he's I was named after Langston Hughes, and he's always been someone who um, whose work has kind of guided my path. So. Tell us what is your sense of Langston
2: Hughes's importance to American culture generally?
4: Mm. Yeah, it's a heavy question. Um, I think, you know, he he's his impact is dynamic. You know, I see him as one of the chief storytellers of Black life in America. You know, at least um, across the first part of the twentieth century, um, his work really documented the the struggles and the triumphs. and the resiliency of working class African-Americans. And, you know, I I see him, and I know we'll talk about this as sort of a ethnographer who, you know, documented black life and then wrote across genre, right? So, yeah, I think, um, you know, Hughes' work really offers incredible insight into um, the attitudes, practices, and general culture of black people, especially under um, the weight of systemic oppression.
2: So in Langston Hughes's compendium, The Book of Negro Folklore, there's a chapter called The Jazz Folk. And I see some parallels between the way Hughes viewed jazz as a whole culture, not just a musical genre, and your own work on Houston hip hop. Could you comment on that a little bit?
4: Absolutely. Yeah. So similar to Hughes' concept of the jazz folk, and I think... Um, Leroy Jones, Amiri Baraka also kind of dealt with this and this concept of the blues people. Yeah, I see hip hop as not just a music, but a a way of life, right? It's a a system of expressions and um, attitudes and practices and um, social relations, right? And so, you know, in Houston, you know, my doctoral dissertation was originally gonna be about, you know, hip hop as a cultural system, right? Looking at how um, language and dress and music and even cars kind of work together to create um, this general sense of being, right? And that's how I I see hip hop. I think, um, you know, if you look at something like jazz folk and uh, blues people and I guess the hip hop generation, right? You know, there's a Kind of a misunderstanding about Black life, right? You know, I think in our fields we like to break practices up into different disciplines and genres, but that's not really the way it works. Right. You know, all of these practices interrelate and um, and work together to create, you know, and shape who we are in our sense of being. And so that's how I see hip hop, and I think that's how you saw jazz.
3: Now as, as we announced at the top of the episode, Langston, we are looking at two kinds of hidden folklorists in, the, in this series um, those whose folklore work is obscured by their own work in other fields and those whose folklore work is perhaps undervalued or excluded because of racism or other kinds of discrimination. what's your take on where Langston Hughes falls in relationship to the field um, you know because of structural exclusion or other things
4: Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, his contributions have fallen victim to the same type of um, racism that other Black folklorists work in, have. And and that's true for other folklorists of color as well. Um, I think, at least in the field of folklore and related fields, that racism um, comes in the form of disciplinarity, right? And trying to protect the genre and all this gatekeeping. Right. And so there's very strict um, racist definitions about who is a folklore and what's considered folklore work. Um, and so I think that's in part why people like him and uh, you know, his collaborator Zora Neil Hurston, you know, have been excluded from our field when in reality, you know, their, they, their work is folklore work. They were out there, you know, during uh, participant observation, right? And collecting songs and tales and materials and then writing across genre, right? So, yeah, I think it has to do with, you know, this legacy of racism in the field. And I'm glad that, you know, the work of the American Folklife Center and I know AFS is doing um, the Folklorists of Color exhibit. I'm glad we're starting to, you know, highlight the long legacy of you know Black and people of color's contributions to the field.
2: Yeah, here at the American Folklife Center and the Library of Congress, we particularly love Zora, whom you mentioned, because we have uh, a number of recordings of her singing songs that she collected. Um, and partly that had to do with institutional racism, too, because she was collecting in the segregated South and uh, couldn't actually use the recording equipment. So they had to come to her and have her re-sing the stuff that she'd, uh, that she'd collected from other people. So it, it was a big part of our history, just like American history. And, uh, and we're really glad to talk about people like Langston Hughes and their importance. So is there anything else you think people should know about him and, and, and his relation to our field?
4: His folklore work deserves more attention. And I think we also need to see that at at the root of all of his work is our field, you know, folklore. I mean, all of his poems, his plays, his novels, and his nonfiction work stem from, you know, his connection to the people and his documentation of the people. And that is folklore work and is very much worthy of study in our field.
2: Well, we totally agree. And we're so glad that you were able to be with us. So thanks so much for being with us. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the Folklife Today podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. You know, John, I remember that in our last episode, we featured the Poetry Slam team put together by the organization Split This Rock. And that organization is named after a poem that Langston Hughes wrote based on a version of Take This Hammer. So let's hear a favorite version from the archive, which is Mississippi John Hurt's Spike Driver Blues. He played this at the Library of Congress in 1963.
1: Take this hammer and to my captain, won't you tell him I'm gone, tell him I'm gone, tell him I'm gone. John Henry was a steel driving man, but he went down, he went down. I moved rent care to my captain. Tell him I'm gone. Tell him I'm gone. Tell him I'm gone. I walked all the way. From East Colorado Honey, that's my home Honey, that's my home That's why I'm gone Take this hammer And care to my captain Oh, tell him I'm gone Won't you tell him I'm gone This is the hammer That killed John Henry, but it won't kill me, but it won't kill me, but it won't kill me. John Henry, he left his ammo, Lane side the road, lane side the road, lane side the road. John Henry, he left his hammer all painted in red, all painted in red, all painted in red.
2: Again, Mississippi John Hurt's Spike Driver Blues, a song known in one form or another to the poet Langston Hughes. Now we're going to be joined by Sophie Abramowitz, who has done some specific research on the connections of Langston Hughes to our own archive here at the Library of Congress at the American Folklife Center. Sophie is a postdoctoral fellow at Brown University and a recent PhD graduate of the University of Virginia. And she's the author of a blog post at Folklife Today about Langston Hughes. So welcome, Sophie.
5: Hi, Steve.
3: Hey, Sophie. Um, It's great to have you. Uh, You open your blog post with an account of Langston Hughes' meeting with Vachel Lindsay. That story is sometimes told in a way that's misleading. So why don't you tell it to us as you see it? Sure.
5: Uh, In 1925, Hughes was living in Washington, D.C., his mother lived nearby and he supported them both, actually, by working as a busboy at the Wardman Park Hotel. Uh, at that point, he was 23 years old and about to publish his first and probably now most famous book of poems called The Weary Blues um, under the imprint of Alfred A. Knuff. From this collection, Hughes transcribed three poems that he slipped onto the table where Rachel Lindsay was eating dinner. Vachel Lindsay was by this time a very famous sort of elder poet engaging in writing that produced experiments with sound. And Lindsay loved the poems, which were um, Jazzonia, Negro Dancers, and The Weary Blues. He publicly performed all three of them at the same hotel the following night. And the stories now often recounted um, from here that Lindsay discovered Hughes. Uh, But to tell it that way would be to reproduce this racist myth of discovery that you see often in early anthropology and in folklore, which discounts the life of the artist before their interactions with white people, usually, who encourage um, their particular kind of fame. Uh, So with his book of poetry out for publication, a piece already published in The Crisis, which was the NAACP's newspaper, famously founded and edited by W.E.B. Du Bois, and a second job as a researcher for the famous historian Carter G. Woodson. Uh, Hughes was already doing okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. And, you know, that story is the founding myth for a number of institutions here in the D.C. area, including the restaurant chain Busboys and Poets. So to get a clear picture of it is fun for me and John and our colleagues here in the D.C. area. So in your blog post, you argue that really at the core of Langston Hughes's work was experimenting with folklore. And you begin with song collecting. Expand on that, if you would.
5: Yes. And I would expand that idea that folklore is at the core of Hughes's work to say that I now believe that Hughes's principal commitments throughout his life were constellated as songwriter, song collector, and historian of Black music with musical attentions that were as sustained and ravenous as they were generically and geographically diverse. Um, I believe that he dedicated his life to music and as to his folkloric work, he was consistently collected creatively with the intention not of recording empirical data, but instead of adapting his materials into art that could capture the rhythm, wit and humor that he heard in black folk expression. Like Zora Neale Hurston, uh, he fundamentally challenged the dominant white supremacist notion that black folklore was archaic. Instead, he saw it as the animating force of the folks' momentum toward modernity. So in June of 1927, which is just a year after The Weary Blues is published, Hughes followed Zora Neale Hurston's advice and set off on a self-styled collecting trip through the southern U.S. and the hemispheric south. He's traveled through the Red Light District in Memphis into Vicksburg, Mississippi, transcribing verses from a stevedore named Big Mac, all the while recording idiomatic vernacular in his notebook, which he'd continue to do three years later on a trip to Cuba. In labor camps in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, he apparently recorded some songs that I have not been able to find. Um, He actually ran into Hurston in Mobile, Alabama, and they continued their field recording trip together from there. In Savannah, Georgia, the two friends and collaborators spent time recording in some form the guitar pickers and the bluesmen on the docks. Um, And I would say also that it's essential at this point to note that the Black folklore that Hughes researched and collected was not only in the service of producing source material. It was the inspiration for his work in form and in spirit. This is um,
3: such fascinating insight, Sophie, and, and you know speaks to the, the research you've been doing. Um, what kind of material are you finding in Hughes's early field notes?
5: Within the framework of creative Black folklore, Hughes' interests were pretty wide-ranging. In Decatur, Alabama, he laid out the chorus of what he called, um, and this is a quote, the blind man playing his guitar and singing, uh, the sermon of what he calls or who he calls an old man named Uncle John and that same old man's daughter's gospel shout. In Huntsville, a story called The Cat Tale that Hughes heard in someone named Mr. Herndon's drugstore appears in his journals before a series of short diary entries that shift between poetry and transcription. Um, also, one unsung cool thing about Hughes is his life as a prolific doodler, the journals have um, a couple pictures and diagrams of things that he's seen, but all over his papers you see these little drawings. Uh, and three years after that first trip, Hughes traveled to Cuba, as I mentioned, where he flooded his travel notebook with personal chronicles about the live performances that he attended. Um, these are the orchestra at Marianoa, a medley of cornetine, maracas, the bongo, piano, claves, guitar de tre cuerdas guayo, violin, and flute at the Club Occidente. He also frequently translated the poetry of Nicolas Guillén, who he encouraged to incorporate the rhythms and themes of Guillén's national Cuban folk music, the son, into his poetry in a mode reminiscent of Hughes' own use of blues and jazz rhythms in his poetry and his other work. So these field notes and transcriptions are evidence not only of Hughes' investment in the poetry of vernacular Black cultures and languages, but also of the formal experimentation that Hughes sees and hears in Black folklore, which he revivifies in these transcriptions, in his poetry, and in his many, many other forms of writing.
2: So as he went on to become an essayist and anthologist, you point out in the blog that he continued to collect songs all along
5: yes as he continued to write poetry fiction and plays and nonfiction, criticism music and literary reviews and librettos he's always continued to collect songs i'd also go as far as to say that his archival work characterized roughly the last 25 years of his life from 1948 until his death in 1967 he was edited and um Compiled 15 anthologies, including the book of Negro folklore, which he collected, compiled, and edited with Arna Bontamps and published in 1958. Beginning in roughly the late 1930s, he also wrote hundreds of songs, librettos, and song poems. And he archived his own work as well to be preserved at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscripts Library at Yale University. In these different practices, collection was both an action and in itself a form of representation. Again, Hughes is always thinking of formal experimentation and folklore together as one.
3: So Sophie, you make the point that scholars have failed to look closely at the way Langston Hughes collected and organized his sources. Um, What do you think is behind that?
5: Yeah, I think Hughes's commitment to the intertwining practices of collecting and organizing his sources is difficult to overstate. His collection is a form of curation. One reason for the oversight you mentioned is that the field of folklore is really fraught, as you both know. It has a history that seeped in fetishism, primitivism and racism. Folklorists have justified the collection and preservation of black cultural production as if it were inherently oppositional to modernity. And this was particularly in the, the case in the time that Langston Hughes was working. Where so-called modern advancements have been historically coded as white, Blackness at the time Hughes began writing was often categorized as being somehow pre-modern and fixed. And, you know, this is a genocidal logic. If an entire identity group of people are considered under white supremacy to be outside of modernity, their death under Jim Crow can be rationalized. Also, during Hughes's lifetime, I think it's worth mentioning that the field was largely closed to practitioners of color, not entirely, but largely By contrast, Hughes was a poet of Black vernacular language, diasporic music, and modernist experimentation. By pivoting from the dominant attitudes of preservation and cultural purity that undergirded folklore as a practice, Hughes embraced a modern, urban vision of Black folk on his own terms.
2: And I think this is where your idea of calling him an experimental folklorist comes in, is that right?
5: Yeah, the scholar Meta Duiwa-Jones speaks to this designation by dissociating Langston Hughes from a misunderstanding that frames him as what she calls, and this is a direct quote, a totemic figure whose pedestal is primarily built on his authentic renderings of African-American forms of vernacular and musical expression. This emphasis, uh, which is partially born of a desire for a kind of simplistic reading of Blackness um, that's rooted in racism, has played a role in oversimplifying Hughes's body of work. Of course, uh, so-called authenticity was never his goal to begin with. Hughes's form of creative folklore pushed against the often naturalized relationship between primitivism and Black art, repositioning Black folk as the harbinger of modernity. Now, Hughes was far from being the only under-recognized Black folklorist. There was also John W. Work, Lewis Wade Jones, Louise Bennett, and Emma Julia Cooper, just to name a few, and of course, the more well-recognized Zora Neale Hurston, who I've mentioned a few times. Um, This work of Black folklore can be emplaced in the work of the Harlem Renaissance to to embrace Black folk culture. As the origin and source of creative brilliance in Black artistry. Because by the 1920s Black vernacular language rendered in dialect was so deeply entrenched in the forms and symbologies of minstrelsy, this embrace was not total. Um, new Negro artists and intellectuals of the Harlem Renaissance took varying approaches to the problem of embracing Black folk culture for both white and Black audiences. This is a really difficult, complicated field that people were forced to work in. One response was to loud Black folk culture as an origin point that modern Black people were currently evolving from. For example, um, embracing Black spirituals as raw material to be rearranged by the growing number of Black choruses like the Fisk Jubilee Singers. Another way is a little closer to Hughes's, um, and that's to embrace different forms of black diasporic vernacular in and of itself.
3: Now, Hughes's engagement with jazz is something we noted with our previous guest in line with what you're you're thinking here. So what stands out to you about that?
5: Yeah, there's so much to say about this. (laughs) Um, In addition to the jazz poetry for which he's now famous, he's reviewed and wrote liner notes for jazz albums, wrote dramas that incorporated jazz, even wrote lyrics for jazz songs. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. But my favorite jazz piece of his is probably his freeform poetic newsreel turned poetry book called Ask Your Mama, 12 Moods for Jazz. Uh, it's just a great monument of and really testament to Hughes' experimental folkloric practice. It uses formal experimentation that mimics and riffs on jazz timing, interpretation, and freestyle to produce something that brings together narrative, political commentary, song, musical notation, geography, poetry, and toasts. It's just wildly, brilliantly experimental orchestrated to challenge the world as he knew it, and totally rooted in vernacular sources, just like jazz.
2: So those are all great points about the way Langston Hughes diverged from previous models of African-American folklore practice made by our guest, Sophie Abramowitz. Of course, we're particularly interested also in his association with our archive. So what can you tell us about that, Sophie?
5: So Hughes's papers are mostly at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale University, but some are also at the Alan Lomax Collection at the American Folklife Center. I write in my piece for the Hidden Folklore series about his fascinating correspondence with Alan Lomax. Lomax compliments Hughes on Hughes's transcription of Dupree Blues in this correspondence and says, and this is a direct quote, I should greatly appreciate any scrap." fragment, stanza or version of any Negro folk song you know, whether it has ever been published or not. And let me assure you that if the archive of American folk song can be of any assistance to you that is within the scope of its procedure." End quote. Um, in Hughes's reply, he asserts himself as an expert of the black folk material that Lomax requests from him. Mentioning his own version of Frankie and Johnny, describing where he first heard Dupree Blues, and importantly asking, um, and I'm gonna kind of quote paraphrase, please be so kind as to indicate the source of the transcription I send you. So people won't maybe think I shall have robbed the American ballads should they come across them in a script of mine.
3: So as you noted, Hughes asserted himself quite rightly as an expert of black folklore. And, of course, defending his collection against the perception, dominant in the time, but maybe afterwards, that it might belong to someone else. What was the scale of his collection at that point? How much had he done?
5: So, by my estimation, the scale was very large. He cites in multiple places a trunk full of papers um, that contain his folk material, and elsewhere he cites the so-called folk material that's kept in his files and his bookshelves. For example, in a letter to Edward H. Dodd Jr. at the publisher Dodd, Mead & Company, he estimates that about half of his so-called folk material from those files and those bookshelves is unpublished. So it's hard to even imagine, since so much of that work is published, Mm -hmm. what's now left over.
2: So that's that's fantastic. And if you look in the book of Negro folklore, you find some great things like rent party invitations from Harlem in the 1930s, which customarily followed a predictable pattern and had a little rhyme on them. And he was ahead of his time in thinking of these written down and printed up items as folklore like what came to be called Xerox lore a few years later. So it's not just traditional folklore, but really cutting edge stuff that Langston Hughes was doing um, back in, at the time that he published uh, his folklore work. So getting back to Dupree, you found some new evidence relating to that song, didn't you?
5: For me, this was the most exciting thing that I was able to find at the American Folklife Center Uh, Because while Lomax had promised to incorporate Hughes's collected variants of Dupree blues into American ballads and folk songs, it doesn't appear in the first volume. It does show up in volume two, Our Singing Country, which is from 1941. And in that volume, Dupree blues is attributed to, quote, Langston Hughes, who heard it in Cleveland in 1936. So this is a victory for Hughes, I think but I couldn't find the original transcription. Where I ended up finding Hughes's collected folk songs um, was in one of Lomax's self-labeled miscellaneous folders in the American Folk Life Center's Alan Lomax Collection. It was titled, American Negro Blues Collected by Langston Hughes, with one and two written in Roman numerals across the headers of the first two pages. The transcription seems to be either of a performer synthesizing a number of blues refrains or of Hughes patching them together into his own song. The second is a collection of song fragments labeled by location. The third is titled Bits of Negro Folk Songs Collected by Langston Hughes. On these folklore transcriptions, Hughes uses the same formatting decisions I've seen him use um, unique to his own drafts of songs in his miscellaneous papers at the Beinecke. Um, So I just wanna emphasize how incredible that is. He uses these kind of hashtags to bisect the page. And I've only seen him do this in the folklore transcriptions and in his song drafts. So these transcriptions and brainstorms appear in these two places and their similarities, I think speak directly to the generative creative exchange that Hughes produced between his songwriting and his song collecting. This is direct formal evidence of their relationship. Um, So while the original transcription of Dupree Blues is still missing, this collection we see at the American Folklife Center is probably only a fraction of the work that Hughes collected but didn't catalog throughout his entire life. And honestly, who knows what else people will find if they keep looking.
3: Yeah, it's just such rich stuff, and you've, you've tipped us off to some really cool things. Um, we'll have to keep an eye out for that full transcription if it ever turns up amongst the Lomax papers that are being transcribed uh, through By the People and, and other platforms at the library. Um, so here's a big question, Sophie. Um, given everything you've taught us today and talked about, why do you think it's important that we acknowledge Langston Hughes' connection to folklore today?
5: That acknowledgement pays respect to the work which he was committed to doing for the majority of his lifetime. Um, But still, it doesn't tell the entire story. Hughes' commitment is to what Zora Hurston had proclaimed in her letter to him early on in their correspondence. When she wrote famously, Negro folklore is still in the making. A new kind is crowding out the old. This is where Hughes' commitments lay. In the visionary futurity of Black folkloric creativity.
3: Wow. Well, Sophie, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today.
2: Yeah, it's been really great catching up with you, Sophie. Thanks for coming.
5: Yeah, it's been fun. Thank you both.
2: Of course, Langston Hughes only sent Alan Lomax the words to Dupree, so they had to print it with someone else's tune. Luckily, John Lomax recorded the song several times at the penitentiary at Rayford, Florida, and they used one of those tunes for the book. We're going to have one of those singers sing us out of this episode.
3: But first, let's say thanks once again to Sophie Abramowitz and Langston Colin Wilkins, as well as all the colleagues throughout the Library of Congress who helped us deploy this podcast.
2: So again, we're paying tribute to Langston Hughes and his work as a song collector, a songwriter, and an experimental folklorist. Another hidden folklorist here on the Folklife Today podcast. And to sing us out, here's a song we know Hughes loved and collected himself more than once. It's Dupree Blues as sung by Buna Flint..
0: That I want me a time on name I'll free, a little better She can get Mr. German, Won't you show me Your diamond sleeve He said Look here Look here Mr. German, Won't you show me Your diamond sleeve Because my little Bitty patty I got to give A cold I said six months ain't no Santa, baby, two years ain't no time, I said six months, Lord, six months ain't no Santa, baby, two years ain't no time, looking for a little better.